0: Well, good evening, we're going to uh, continue now in the book of Proverbs, if you'd like to grab a Bible if you've got one, and uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 5, we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 23, Uh, so let me just give you a few seconds to find that, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 23, here we go. My son, be attentive to my wisdom Incline your ear to my understanding That you may keep discretion And your lips may guard knowledge For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey And her speech is smoother than oil But in the end she's bitter as wormwood Sharp as a two-edged sword Her feet go down to death Her steps follow the path to Sheol She does not ponder the path of life her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honour to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labours go to the house of a foreigner, And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. Well, it's quite a passage, isn't it? Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we begin. Our Father, we know that every single part of your words comes from the divine hand of the Holy Spirit, that it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the servant of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Lord God, in your providence, you've given us this word on this day at this time. And we ask that you would now help us as we look at this together, that by your Holy Spirit, we might live a life that's pleasing to you, that's pure and faithful, and all for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, back in Proverbs, two weeks off in Psalms, um, but back into these first chapters of Proverbs. And if you remember, uh, in, the, in the first few chapters of this book, you encounter several lessons or lectures that are designed to hold up and hold out the wisdom of God to us. They teach us to get his wisdom so that our lives stay on track spiritually, so that we avoid the pitfalls and the dangers that life puts in our path. And most of these lessons, they come in the form of a father, King Solomon particularly, speaking to his son. And the father teaches his son God's wisdom, wisdom that he's learned from God over the course of his life. What's the heart of that wisdom? Well, the heart of the wisdom is this, that the father urges his son to fear the Lord, to put his trust in the Lord only and fully to lean on the Lord and the Lord's word rather than on himself. In doing that, he can make good decisions in his life. Now in this lesson that we're going to hear tonight, he's going to urge his son to obey the Lord's word. He's going to urge him particularly about one area of life to make good godly decisions. And he begins as he normally does by saying, listen up, pay attention, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. The son's to listen up and not just to listen actually, he's to repeat the lesson to himself. It's to be on his lips throughout his life. And now the father, he introduces his topic. And he does it pretty frankly, doesn't he? Time to talk the birds and the bees, son, he says. He wants him to realise that there is a particular danger that he will need to be alert to, and that's the danger of the temptation to sexual sin. And he introduces it in the way that the proverbs often does. He personifies it in verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. This verse introduces this character, the the forbidden woman. Actually, literally, it's it's a strange woman. That is a woman that he does not yet know. And we can imagine in this scenario, this father talking to his son, that the son perhaps is a young man. He's on the edge of maturity. He's a bit naive in the ways of the world. And the father knows that he's about to walk into a world full of sexual temptation. And he wants him to be alert to that danger. And the language is very sensual language, isn't it? Honey on her lips, oil in her mouth. She will come along and she will speak honeyed words and smooth talk. She'll be dripping with sweetness. She'll glisten like oil. You will absolutely want to taste her. And if you do, well, it will feel great, won't it? It will be exciting, thrilling. Your senses will be overwhelmed with pleasure. At least for a moment. For the pleasure you find in her does only last a moment. The honeyed taste of her lips turns sour when it hits the stomach. Verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it and this is the way all temptation works, but particularly sexual temptation, that sin, it it looks great. Of course, it tastes great too, at least for a moment. But then it turns sour inside us. She's like a bitter substance, a poison or, switching metaphors, a sword even that will strike you down. She's on the path to Sheol, that, that place of the dead, the dark. Place where God is not present. To have an affair with her, to unite with her, is to walk with her to that destination. The big point of this introduction in these first few verses is to put the young man on alert. Like most young men, he isn't that bright when it comes to these things, and he's pretty hormonally charged. He needs this warning. But actually, so do we all. There is a particular danger in the Christian life that derails people. And that's falling into sexual sin. And just to say, in my experience as a minister over the last uh, 10 years or so, sexual sin is right at the top of the list when it comes to sins that have derailed the spiritual walk of Christian people. Be alert to it. That's the beginning of wisdom in this area. Be alert to this danger. Know that it is a danger to you. It's foolishness to think that it isn't. Now before we hear the main body of this teaching on how to avoid this danger, let me just say a couple of things just to help us to think about this passage, how to interpret it. I guess as it's been read and as we've begun, you, you might be thinking, well, look, hang on, this, this passage, it sounds pretty chauvinistic. You know, is this just blaming women for men's sins, men's sexual sins? Isn't that what it's saying? Aren't the men to blame, really? Or well, on the other hand, you might be thinking, perhaps the other way around, hang on a minute, look, don't women struggle with sexual temptation too? You know, it's not just a guy's problem, isn't it? You know, why single out men for this struggle. Well, if those are your objections, let me just say a couple of things um, about that. First, that it is true in the Bible and uh, true um, for all of us that each individual is to blame for their own sin. We can't point the finger at others and say, well, it was your fault that I sinned. In fact, that's not what the son does in this um, passage. Look a bit later on in verse 13. Who does the young man blame? Well, he doesn't blame her. He blames himself. I didn't listen. And that's the right response when we sin. It isn't right to blame others for our sin. We need to take responsibility for ourselves, even as we recognize that temptation does come from others. Now, secondly, I want to say this, that when we read passages like this, we need to accept that they can't say everything The context here is that of a young man who is either just about to be married or is just married. That's who it's first written to. And so the likelihood is that he is going to be tempted to sins actually with women. And so the temptation is personified as a woman. And that just means that we need to make the necessary adaptions in order to put it into our own circumstances. The temptation to sexual sin can come from the other direction too. It, as if you, you know, you're a woman and there's a guy out there who's trying to get you into bed with him. Both men and women need to apply this, these principles here to themselves uh, in their own circumstances. Now, the third thing I think will help us as we work our way through is that it will help us to identify exactly which sins he's talking about here. Now, primarily, the sin that the father has in view is that of adultery, sex where one or both of the partners are already married to others. And we need to speak specifically uh, about adultery um, in applying this then. And that might be a real thing for some of us at the moment. We shouldn't think that that that's not realistic for a church like ours. The object of our temptation may be a work colleague or a friend or a friend's wife or husband. It might be someone that you've met on the internet, apparently uh, about two-thirds of affairs begin like that today. It might even be someone in this church whom you're drawn to. That would be the primary target for this passage but its scope is broader than that. I mean, let's, let's be real about the world that we live in. It may be that this passage is speaking to you tonight of the variety of men and women whose honeyed, glistening lips you've seen and heard on the very screen that you're watching this service on this evening. Recent survey suggested that 77% of men And 47% of women look at pornography at least once a month. And the research suggests that the numbers don't go down much for Christians or indeed for church leaders. A little bit, but not much. And now, of course, we're spending more time on our own with our screens than we ever have before. Let's be real. Is... That not a sin that looks great, and even tastes sweet for a moment, but even in the end turns bitter inside us and takes us on ever onwards down a darkened path. See this wisdom from Proverbs five; it, it will apply to real life, flesh and blood affairs. It certainly will. But it will also apply to the hundreds of mini virtual affairs also. Be alert, wake up, listen in. The Lord is speaking to us here and now. Well what's he saying? And here we enter the part one of the central block of wisdom teaching in this passage, verses seven to 14. Let me just read verses 7 to 8. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. It's not just saying, don't go there, don't have an affair. It is saying that, But it goes further, doesn't it? It's saying, don't even go near it. Stay away. And this, I think, is real practical wisdom, isn't it? Because our hearts are so easily swayed, we convince ourselves that we can resist this temptation, and and so we toy with it. We go near the house and look through the window, as it were. But then before we know it, we're in the front door and upstairs to the bedroom. Don't go near the house in the first place, says the wisdom of God. Don't go for that drink just as friends. Don't spend all that time alone with her or him. Don't start exchanging those messages. Don't sign up to that website. Don't have your smartphone next to your bed at night time. To use New Testament language, this is the message. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. away. Now the father goes on. And he seeks to persuade his son just how bad an idea having an affair would be. And he persuades him by listing the consequences of what would happen if this was discovered in verses 9 to 14. And there are six different consequences listed here. And the effect, as you read it through, is that they pile up one on the other until you realise just how destructive an affair would be. Just how foolish it would be to give yourself sexually to another person or, or persons who uh, are not your spouse. It complicates everything. Let's go through them, the six pretty quickly. Uh, here they are, number one. Lest you give your honour to others, verse nine. See, when the affair or the, say the pornography addiction is discovered, your reputation will be ruined. Others will go up in the world. While you go down. Number two, lest you give your years to the merciless. I think this response refers to the response of those offended by the affair. There will be retribution from the woman's husband and his mates. They will show you no mercy, and your life may well be cut short. But there's no mercy from the pornography industry either, is there? Only slavery. It's merciless. It enslaves. Your years can be given over to that too. Number three. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labours go to the house of a foreigner. What does that mean? It means that affairs are expensive, Cover-ups, cost, child support, divorce settlements, lawyers. It will make you pay. Your wealth will end up in other people's hands. For it might take your health, your mental health through the stress involved, and your physical health through sexually transmitted diseases. I think verse 11 hints at this. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Number five, here's a big one, regret. Huge regret. As a minister, you end up speaking to lots of people who have messed up sexually in the past. And, and let me tell you that what a father puts onto the young man's lips here, it could be on any of those people how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't want to listen. Huge regrets. Then finally, number six you risk the misery of social exclusion. Verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin, in the assembled congregation. The affair will cost you your family, your friendship groups, your place in society, and possibly even your church family. Utter ruin. And the effect of that list is pretty dramatic, isn't it? It piles up one thing on another thing on another thing. And so it tells you that sexual sin is a really bad idea. We must flee from it before it ruins us. And this is the wisdom of Christ. Jesus has been saying much the same thing to us in Mark's Gospel, hasn't he? If your eye, your hand, your foot causes you to sin, take drastic action, cut it off, gouge it out. Don't go near it or risk the utter ruin of hell. It's very sobering. Don't go near it. That's the first half of this wisdom. But you may be thinking, or perhaps if you're, if you're watching and you're not yet a Christian, look, this, this just confirms everything that I thought about the Christian view of sex. Prudish, restrictive, anti-sex, essentially. Well, hang on, because we've only had half the lesson. The Bible is firmly against sexual sin, that sexual activity outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman. There's a well-worn illustration that goes like this, that the fire must be kept in the fireplace or it burns the house down. The Bible's firmly against sexual sin, for it destroys. But the Bible is not firmly against sexual enjoyment. Not at all. In fact, in the context of marriage, it is firmly for it. And here's part two. In the fireplace, the fire should be stoked as hot as you can get it. Part two of the lesson tells us to embrace sexual fidelity and joy in marriage. And the Father uses thirst to illustrate sexual desire in this section, and well, we'll see where that thirst should be satisfied, verse 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, In contrast to the bitter honey of the strange woman, there is a source of sweet water for the son to drink from, his own wife. The word let in these verses is perhaps better translated may. May they be for yourself alone. May your fountain be blessed. May. In other words, the father's praying He's praying that this will be the the thrilling and exciting intimate relationship his son will have with his wife. She is a source of thirst-quenching joy that only he has access to. In fact, the father makes that point here, that you wouldn't want that source being given away to anyone else, would you? It's just for you that she gives her body. It's a picture of abundant satisfaction, overflowing delight. It's so positive about sexual intimacy in a marriage. And the father prays that this will be his son's experience throughout his life. I wonder whether you've ever prayed that for married couples that you know. Verse 19 is a strange verse though, isn't it? See all this wonderful talk of fountains overflowing and sweet water and the wife being a source of life to her husband and and then he says this killer line that she looks like a fairy woodland creature. I'm sure it's a compliment in the culture that it's written in but it doesn't sound like one to us. I'm not sure my wife would respond too well if I called her a lovely deer. I guess the closest thing in our culture, we might say something like this. We might say that, you know, may you think, may you always think that your wife is a fox? I don't know. Maybe you can come up with a, a better contemporary equivalent uh, in the Zoom chat afterwards. It's the second part of the verse, though. That's the most racy, isn't it? In fact, in Hebrew, it's even more so than in English. It promotes both the quality... And the quantity of sex in a marriage. He is to delight in the sight and touch of her body at all times. He is to be intoxicated with her. That's literally, he's to be drunk on her always. The language shows that this is to be their practice continuously, repeatedly. And notice there's no mention of babies here, it's not functional. It's for their pleasure. It's quite something, and you might be surprised to find that in the Bible. It's important that we don't sensationalise what the Bible says, but it's equally important that we let the Bible speak. And this is what it says. Embrace sexual fidelity, faithfulness, and joy, excitement in marriage. And when you do that, well, the question of verse 20 seems ridiculous. Why would you go anywhere else? One major help in the fight against sexual sin is to find sexual satisfaction in the marriage bed. And Paul says exactly the same thing in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 7. And there, actually, he says it both to men and to women. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Sounds like Proverbs 5. But then he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. This is biblical sexual wisdom. And it's the wisdom of Christ. And it may be that as a married person listening to this, that you're aware that intimacy has, over the years, just drifted in your marriage. And perhaps not just sexual intimacy, perhaps intimacy in general. My wife, Jo, and I, we've had several conversations with married couples over the last few years, both with Christians and with non-Christians where a loss of intimacy has been a real problem. People spending more time on their screens than with their spouses. People so busy with work that they never talk anymore. And yes, the marriage bed neglected. Perhaps Christ would use his word to us tonight to think again on these things, to work to restore joy and delight. And it may be that you need some help to work that through with people. We're very happy to speak with you as an eldership here. We're happy to help you to work through these things. But just to reassure you, this is a common issue. But there is, through the grace of Christ, real hope that things can be turned around. It may be, on the other hand, that you're listening to this and you're single, either before or after marriage, what does this passage have for you? Well, the, fir- the first thing that it would have you do is buy into a godly worldview of sex and marriage. The son being spoken to, he may be single, he may not be in marriage yet. If that's the case, then it's designed to show him how to live in a world full of sexual temptation. It wants to sell to him, if you if can put it like that, sell to him the biblical view that the place for the fire is in the fireplace, that God's good design is for sex in the marriage relationship and that sex outside that brings ruin into someone's life. Buy into that wisdom. The passage can't say everything on this topic, but can I encourage you that this does not mean that a single person cannot have a full and joyful life, not at all. Fullness of joy is found in Christ, not in sex. And the Apostle Paul would have much to say that's positive about the single celibate life, the life that he lived and the life that our Lord Jesus himself lived. Well, how does our lesson conclude It concludes with one final call to reckon with the consequences, verse 21 to 23. Just notice in these last few verses that the father wants to emphasise to the son that the consequences of indulging in sexual sin and neglecting sexual joy in marriage are not merely physical and here and now consequences. He mentioned those earlier, and they're significant but it's not the practical and physical effects of an affair that he leaves us thinking about. There are more serious consequences to reckon with. These sexual sins of ours are ultimately of spiritual and eternal significance. They're sins against the Lord, the judge of all things. Verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he's held fast in the courts of his sin he dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he's led astray under the eye of the Lord who can claim they've walked a blameless path can you? I mean honestly can you? The Lord has watched every path your life has taken. Everything is known to him. Every sinful thought, every secret desire, every shameful act. Just on this one sin alone, just sexual sin, just on that one sin, apart from all the others, who can stand in the day of judgment? I can't. And neither can you. We're sexual fools living in a world of sexual fools, full of iniquity, held fast in the courts of our sin, lacking discipline, so easily led astray. Why does the Father end on this note? Well it's in part to leave the warning ringing in the son's ears but if that is where it leaves us, what are we to do? Because each of us knows that we cannot stand, that that the judgment of God is rightly upon us for our sexual sin, as well as for all the rest. Now, This conclusion, it can't be here merely to warn us. It must be here also to cause our hearts to fall upon the mercy of Christ. Be alert to the danger of sexual temptation. Flee from it. Embrace sexual fidelity with joy in marriage. That's Christ's wisdom. But you cannot do any of that without first falling on Christ's mercy. His mercy is needed before his wisdom. At the cross, Jesus, the perfect and pure Son, he fell into utter ruin. He was ensnared by our iniquity. He was held fast, not by nails, but by the cords of our sin. He died for our lack of discipline. We all like sheep were led astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because he did that in our place, because he took our judgments, we can have his mercy Later on in this book, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says this. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Fall on the mercy of Christ and then live in his wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we come to this topic, we re- realize just how far short we fall. We know that uh, we are in a situation that the end of this proverb uh, passage describes, that as you've watched our paths, you're aware of everything we do and everything we think, everything we desire. And so we come, Lord, and we fall on you for mercy. We ask for your forgiveness and we thank you that through Christ we have that forgiveness and we have the gift of your Holy Spirit who enables us to live a life of wisdom that's pleasing to you. Work in us, we pray, to make us like your son Jesus, that we might be pure in all we do. Amen.